0: So, Assalamualaikum. welcome to another episode of the Pakistan experience. And I wanted to a lot of times, but since about 14 August, it was my personal vested interest, I to a of oral So, I, I reach out So, I wanted this free masterclass. So, I have podcast so a free masterclass how are you doing?
1: I'm good. Thank you so much for having me.
0: No, no, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, i really want to get into your work lekin abhi mai social media dekh ke thoda sa kaafi uh, affected bhi hu we reject domestic violence 2021 bill a uh, trend ho raha hai. so i know history badi dialectic hoti sweeping statements you avoid generally but do you see any trend that ye radicalization hame is had tak le aayi hai uh, ek assumption hota hai ke hum to hamesha se aise hi the hum to hamesha se atugro hum mohammed bin qasim the. But do you see a trend that we're headed towards maybe much more radicalized youth on both sides of the border now?
1: I'm concerned about that, definitely. I think um you know, of course, it's a lot of colonialism ka, you know, role, hai, then partition itself crystallizing identities. But post-partition years, you can see these identities crystallized further crystallized. And I think our nationalism, an idea of the self is now Premised on this otherization, right? Whether other across the border or other, you know, within your own nation, and across, you know, of course, caste and, and class and gender. Um, but I'm really worried about that. I think it. I, no, again, no sweeping statements, but it is very concerning where we are heading. Yeah.
0: yeah. I know. Again, it's a simplistic take, but uh, Aisha Jalal a very good quote replaced with ideology. I think what we are taught. Is nahin, hum se hi ek alag the. So the otherization that you're talking about, there, it is otherizing, it's present verb, it's happening, but they make it seem like it was always so.
1: No, I mean, um, not at all. Uh, I think ke, bilkul, I, I completely agree with Dr. Jalal that we have history parte, hum ideology hain. and ideology. And Pakistan studies are very I'm more than happy to talk about that, especially post 1971, our textbooks being revised. But I think the process started much earlier. I think the process started with colonialism, the process started with labeling people for electoral uh, uh, you know ele- um, uh, election politics and all of that aap define aap Hindu hain, aap hain, and aap muslim hain. what does that mean um and and then i think these notions get internalized they get internalized by muslims they get internalized by hindus as well that we have always been these two separate nations and i think wo politically is the hota hai, and then you know then we are in the situation we are in today where we only read ideology unfortunately um there is a lot focus and uh, um, that's a big problem, yeah.
0: Uh, you've written a book on Kishmini, you've written a book on 1971, you've written a book on 1947. You don't have any easy topics. Aap leti nahi hai. I think you can T20 World Cup that fans have experienced experience. <laughs> so that's something less. Maybe actually more controversial. But we're going to get into all three. But the most popular question on YouTube was, How did you manage to do that?
1: I think these books have all been, uh, for me, very personal projects. These were topics that I was interested in. I wanted to know more about. And I think one led to the other. Um, it's been very much an unlearning process because maybe Pakistan may very, you know, I've studied from the same textbooks. Um, I have grown up with the same kind of prejudice and bias, the otherization process. And I think the moment where things shifted for me was with my introduction to oral histories. Um, I didn't really know about oral histories, even though our families may, you know, uh, mm-hmm. our grandparents are always kind of telling us stories. So, um, South Asia makes a rich tradition here of storytelling, but it was when I started working with the citizens archive on oral history program that I began to realize how much I did not know. Um, And I think that was a critical moment for me and that just got me on this journey of recording these oral histories, and I really thought that, you know, I think to some extent, even till today, things are shifting now, but hum sochte hain partition through Punjab's lens. So I thought I had done this work and I understood partition. Um, but after I published the book, I realized how little I really knew. And I also realized that so I won't understand um, partition because you have to see the ways in which it remains ongoing. The violence remains ongoing in Kashmir. So that took me to Kashmir. And once I was in Kashmir, I realized that India, Pakistan, Pakistan policies with, with Kashmir in Kashmir, um, you can't really understand them till you understand 71. So for me it's just been one project leading me to another, one book leading to another book um, and uh, it's just been topics I've been curious about, I want to learn. I want to speak with people who maybe live through that time, who can give me another history. Um, conventional textbooks and conventional sources of history may bhi nahi hongi, stories of ordinary people um, and and multiple experiences across caste, gender, and so forth. So. So that's how this
0: has happened. I know you've written three books, and maybe you've written three books, so we're going to get a lot of But what are your thoughts on this notion that the primacy of the written word is also a colonial idea? That we have to do history, or we have to define it, or we have to define it. In the past, Sharam keeps recommending define and rule. That we define it. So, the primacy of the written word, do you think that's also part of the colonial project, that oral tradition, you can understand it less or you don't understand it?
1: I think so. And I also think it's very interesting that the return to oral history is now coming. You know, It started in Britain again, um, then in Europe again, that we need to record these oral histories. So it's very interesting. But I think we see that as more credible. Um, and uh, there has been, uh, you know, over time, a dismissing of these other histories, these, these other ways of telling history, these other forms of storytelling and narration. And I think it's critical to go back to them. Because written cheese your oral say translate ho ke written mein hai, it is in many ways losing um its essence. Um and, and you can only get so much in the written form. I think many, I think the two also complement each other. Um so it is not a lot of times people say you know, oral history is not credible, hai, aap hmm. kaam um I have lots of responses to that, but uh, I think ke, you know it's not about one history or the other history. <laughs>
0: And Anam response to historians. <laughs> Says <laughs> no. your history is bullshit, actually. <laughs> oh, no, no,
1: no, no, no. I just, I think, we, why do we have to narrow ourselves? Why do we have to confine ourselves to one type of history or one kind of recording of history, right? Like, why can't we access multiple forms of uh, storytelling in history? Um, I think that would be very exciting. Yeah.
0: I think, Chalain, uh, is nuanced take. Aisha Jalal was on the podcast. And she said it's important to tell, and I may be butchering her thoughts, so please don't pin them on her. But what I said was that yes, you can tell uh, what happened at the margins, but it's important to histories in as so far as it contributes to the main narrative. That margins, which is the main narrative or main story, is important hai as opposed to telling the margins for what it is. You can still do that but that maybe doesn't do much as to retelling the objective history, so-and-so. What are your thoughts about that idea?
1: So my um, thoughts, I, I actually personally feel, and this is just speaking for myself, okay, I don't know if I really believe in objective history anymore. Um, I really like Urvashi Batalia's work. I've learned so much from her. And one of the things she says is that even, you know, um, facts are not self-evident givens, right? They do have been recorded and told by somebody. Um, so even within how to quote unquote objective history, and there are often multiple perspectives, if, if you kind of dig deeper into that history. So that's something I think about a lot now, okay, you know, objectivity and uh, Uh, What is, you know, and and how can more subjective experiences come forth? I I do believe absolutely that the history of the margins can. Further and can, and can contribute to the main history, if you want to call it that. Um, but I also think that history off the margin, at the margin, is as important and, in fact, can tell us other histories which may never have been there in, in the main text um, because they were just not deemed as important to record. I mean, we know, okay, um, you know, again, going back to Rishi Bhattalia, when she wrote The Other Side of Silence in the 90s, that's one of the first times that we're actually recording women's experiences at partition in that way. Right. So I be historiography thi, that was very gendered in a sense, very masculine historiography. So a lot of times the history at the margins is, is critical history, is essential history, and I would say is as, as important as any other form of history so far been recorded. Uh,
0: yeah. you went to Lahore American School, right? Uh,
1: no, I went to uh, well, LGS and and then other multiple schools, Cardinal, LaCasse. yeah.
0: So I mean, the reason I'm asking is that my schooling in Pakistan and I think a really unfortunate thing that we, schools in Pakistan, I don't know if LGS did it, but my school did a lot of and it's only when I went for my master's that I had to unlearn that. They really uh, brought the stick down if you used I. If you put yourself into your work, it was seen as a negative thing. It's almost like a veneer of objectivity. a ch- sixth grader is writing an essay. Of course, wo, wo matlab, encyclopedia entry nahi dal it's better for them to give a subjective lens. You really put yourself into the work. And I think maybe an old school mentality, at least in schooling, mein jo hai, would see that as a negative thing. Did you have to unlearn a lot of things that you learned at school to develop a writing style where you were part? Of your research, very
1: much so. That's a great question. Um, That's what I do. It's kind of my thing. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really, really good question. Um, I haven't thought about that for a very long time, but yes, I think there were a lot of questions I had to my partition that you know, does it make sense for me to put myself here, um, you know, I think there was a time where I was getting very kind of fixated on your objective hai ya nahi? Um, and, you know, um, is it, uh, do I have enough stories to put out there, does it even make sense to publish a book, am I making some grand claim over here and I had to take a back step and a lot of conversations with friends really helped uh, kind of going, you know, I think unlearning, um, you need you need to be in conversation with people um, for some of that unlearning to take place, and I think that's where I realized you know friends pointing out that you don't you know these these histories are as valid, um, and and it is very like my own my own kind of um, my own process of that unlearning is also important because in many ways it's not just my process either. I think, as you're saying, you know, a lot of us have grown up with certain narratives, and at some point in time, hopefully, some point in time, started to question those narratives. So I also wanted to bring that, in. I wanted to bring in a very honest critique of myself, like what am I going in with, and then what am I coming out with, and how is that shifting things for me? But I do have to say that okay, this was a lot easier for me with the partition book because my family has a partition story, so I felt like in some ways it was. My story to tell. Jab, um, I had a lot more questions then because I like I'm not Kashmiri, right? So how do I put myself in here? I'm going, I'm recording these narratives. I don't want to become a representative. I don't think I can, I don't think I should, right? And now, how do I put myself in here? Um, now how do, you know, how do my subjective questions not kind of overshadow what people are saying is important to her. So I think it's not something I've fully figured out. I think with every new you know work that I'm doing, uh, these questions are raised and, and there are different forms of unlearning. And one of them is the subjectivity. Like, should I bring myself in? Is this okay? I think I'm increasingly comfortable with that. I think it is really important to do that. I think that even in the Kashmi book, it actually really helped because then it was not about me Teaching Kashmir to anyone, I can't. Mm -hmm. It was me, you know, unlearning my own kind of Kashmir narrative, status narrative, state narrative, jingoistic narrative, and then saying, well, here's what I knew. And here's what people are saying. And this is transforming the way I think about this place. This is my journey. I'm just bringing that in alongside people's narratives. So I think it's become a very critical uh, tool for me. It's, it's there on all my books now. And I don't know how to take myself out of it. <laughs>
0: because... Great, But it's cards on the table, right? This is where I'm coming from. This is the lens I have. This is how I'm seeing it. If you don't reflect in By By putting your cards on the table, uh, wo objectivity or neutrality, bade buzzwords and what People think even as a moderator, you, you should absolutely be neutral. You should give Trump the equal time as Biden. No, if one of them is asking for uh, his supporters to attack the Capitol and the other one is also problematic, it doesn't mean that you equate kar sakte So by putting yourself out there, that this is where I'm coming from. This is how I see it. And then even when... It also allows people to read against the grain. Oh, yeah, Shayed is by se Aria, So This is why she focused on this. Whereas maybe she could have focused on that. But you're giving them that license. So you're giving them that this is just one piece of the mosaic. I'm not giving you the entire puzzle. I'm not pretending that it is.
1: No, I don't want to pretend that it is. And I also think that we all carry our bias into our work. We all carry our preconceived notions. And um, I have in no way worked through all of them. But I want to be kind of honest with that unlearning is taking place during an interview or during a particular place that I'm visiting, like when I visited Bangladesh and now i'm learning new things and i'm starting to see that history in a different light i want to share that i want to share as much as i can as aware as i am of okay you know i I carried this notion with me and now something is happening it is being challenged what is that process like for me um so i I think that becomes really important yeah
0: so we've learned how to criticize the colonial lens of the colonial construct but i also see it's a completely different format, but these vlogs or documentaries, a lot of times, to they're not colonial, hai, but they're urban, let's say, urban lens, leke, urban biases. Leke. So there's power dynamics It's almost like they're speaking down to those people. So when you're recording these oral histories, how do you avoid that?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question. Um I, I mean, I can just say what I think I do and I hope I'm able to do it, but I think it's the important hota hai to build a kind of, I build a relationship and and uh, I do go in with some kind of sense of what I want to, you know, speak about, but for a very long time now moved away from structured interviews. questions, you know, because I feel like that assumes that I know. Um, And I've learned over time that I usually don't know that I'm usually wrong. So one of the things I try to do now is is kind of go in and and let people tell me what they feel is important to tell me and I'm there as a listener as much as I can be, Um, you know, I think listening is so critical listening to the silences is so critical listening to the body language is so critical especially if you're doing oral history work so i i do try to do 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 that as as less you know um bring in as less as possible preconceived notions and and structured ways of questioning people because that's assuming that's assuming a lot of things about them Um, and that's not true that's that's actually never true in my experience so i go in as somebody very comfortable with the idea that i probably don't know She's my interest here, I want to know more, but only you can tell me what is worth knowing, what is important in your life and your personal story that you think is worth speaking to me about. And I'm also very conscious, I try to be um, of my Punjabi and Pakistani um, kind of identity um, and my privilege, um, but... Uh, but yeah, I think this is something to constantly be thinking about because the minute you think I'm done with it or like I understand, I, I you know I never will bring in those biases. That's the minute you will. And I'm all constantly being checked on ground, right? Um, by by the counter questions uh, people will ask or by the answers they're giving me, and it's making me constantly conscious of of my own limited, myopic worldview. A lot of times, yeah, yeah.
0: So when you say you live with them, is that a longer pursuit, or do you mean like? I just go there for a few hours. how exactly modalities your logistics? No,
1: I don't live uh, with them. Uh, no, no, it's not long ethnographic work, but um, I might you know um spend a couple of nights. Um, absolutely. Like when I mm-hmm. and Nidham Valley, then you know I would uh, spend a few nights there. And uh, the interviews usually, I mean, they're different types. So they're one-on-one interviews. Um, and then there's sometimes follow up interviews. So it's more than one sitting. A lot of times they are group interviews. So a lot of women I interviewed in Neelam Valley, they were in group settings. Um, so uh, So I went back, uh, you know, a couple of times there. Bangladesh, of course, there was a longer um, trip. So I was, yeah. Um, so it really varies. Punjab uh, Those are usually day trips. Um, but for a lot of interviews, then I've gone back because I've had more questions or, you know, that one initial interaction has shown me that I thought, you know, you know, I should interview this person about this particular thing, but maybe something else is important. So then I want to go back and say, can we actually talk about that?
0: What's more important to be authentic to that one person or to be authentic to the work in general. So let's say, essentially, is there any fictionalizing? Would you be like, you know, maybe this anecdote from that person, would fit into this person's story. So I'm sort of mixing two characters to make one character. Is it some of that fictionalizing?
1: Very tempting. Um, uh, So I think that, again, this goes back to what she was saying earlier, when you translate something from the oral to the Mm. written right and especially long interviews sometimes they go for hours and hours and hours right and you're trying to bring some kind of chronology or some type of coherence or flow you are moving things around and a lot of people have written about very interesting comments on this of you know um, you're constructing and you're Mm. reconstructing something and I think we have to be really aware that we are doing that so things are moving around absolutely but um, that you know I think that might be um, really crossing that boundary I think it is very important to um uh, to be ethical of course you know but having said that uh you know kashmir wali kitab mein, yeah, some of the other work i've done where i'm not able to use people's names for security reasons um you know because or, or the interviews too sensitive then i have to also think about okay how do i tell the story without this being linked back to that person so how you know i'll have to change a few things um but that is more for for their safety Rather than fictionalizing, um, mm-hmm. yeah, creating something entirely new. But yeah, I think just that construction and reconstruction is happening all the time when you're taking something oral and you're turning it into something written. And um, I try to talk a, a little bit about that as well um, during the course of my books. Yeah.
0: So, in terms of narratives, yeah, broader narratives, wo hai, ya, are you conscious of a thread? this narrative ban throughout these oral histories that I can thread it? Is that a conscious effort or do you look at that after you're done with the work?
1: I think after, after I'm done with the work. Um, definitely, you know, then some things are being raised in an interview. Then when I'm interviewing other people, I'll say, okay, this was a very interesting thing that was raised. Um, Can you also tell me what are your views? So sometimes, you know, the questions will be interwoven into other um, interviews as well, but I think a lot of that structuring and where something goes comes afterwards. And now I also try not to bring too much coherence, and this is something I've learned over time, because a lot of times when you're documenting oral histories, you're also documenting trauma memories right and um, a lot of times those memories will come forward in fragments. They will come forward as I was saying earlier in silences and what cannot be said and I'm increasingly thinking about how can I translate some of that onto the paper so rather than forcing coherence or forcing flow or forcing narrative where maybe it is a much more fragmented utterance which is not a coherent narrative how can I bring that to the book because that's the experience of the person so I'm not just documenting the story I'm also documenting how that story is being told what is not being told um, and what would be different if I was not the interviewer and it was somebody else? Like, what does it mean for Bangladeshi to speak to a Pakistani versus speaking to another Bangladeshi? So these are questions I'm I'm really interested in the method and the form of it um, itself. So
0: yeah, I think you've also studied uh, psychotherapy, and uh, I'm not sure yeah. if you had done that before your first book. So uh, how has that educated your work in terms of? Um, you're being very honest, you're recording what the other person's saying. But now maybe you're also thinking about a trauma mind. Hai. Ye repression hai. Now you're also recognizing uh, how the brain of the other person is doing. Has that changed the work at all?
1: Um, yes and no. So I think one thing I'm very careful about, whether it's my friends or, you know, it's an interview setting that I'm not pathologizing anybody. I'm not it's sitting It's impossible.
0: There. It's once you learn <laughs> two, three things, and you're like, this <laughs> is <projection karta hai. laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, Sometimes that happens, but I, I try to be conscious of that. No, but I think it's definitely changed my work in the sense of, um, I, I did this counseling, uh, you know, diploma that I've done after my first book, and while I was starting my work in Kashmir, and I think it felt necessary. It felt necessary because I realized, again, that I'm sitting with trauma memories, and I'm going in. I'm not a journalist, right? I'm not going in for a story, but it can very quickly become that, um, right? Like, you, I, I want to know the story because I want to write about it, and I'm pushing the other person to tell me their story, but the thing is that I get to leave, and they do not, mm-hmm. right? And that's a critical difference. This is their life. It is not a story for them. right? So how do I then ethically do this? I think I've become, over time, much more conscious of uh, nonverbal language and communication. Um, I, I try to be as conscious as possible about where not to push. So a lot of times, yes, I, you know, I know Okay, if I ask this question, I may even get what I may be wanting to hear. But is that ethical or not? Like I can see this person is, is really struggling right now. And and maybe this is not the ethical question to ask, and maybe an important question to ask, but it's not an ethical question to ask because this could really trigger something. So um, that's an ongoing something I'm thinking about very much that's, when I'm seeing those interviews. That's
0: settings. so interesting. It's like Dumbledo Logo ko karta tha unki memory ke liye. it'd be like nahin, Voldemort ko hai tum may Jobvi memory or Nicklo Harry Potter is they use just to take out people's memories. So this is a very uh, important thing that you've said. yeah, how do you grapple with that idea, right? Is there let's say even if you're talking about partition, a lot of terrible things happened, people saw a lot of terrible things. And if they come up and you do the interview and you leave, is there an ethical dilemma there? Yaar, achha, agar ye usse bahar nah asake, should we offer therapy? How does that work?
1: Yeah, no, it is. These are all ethical questions. Um, and uh, I do try where possible to stay in touch uh, with the interviewees um, afterwards, not as a therapist, of course, but just maintaining that contact um, and that relationship. It's not always possible. Um, at all but I do try where where I can Um, and as I mentioned a lot of times these interviews are happening in different settings so it's not always one time and then you just leave um, either so you'll probably have some kind of contact and coming back and you have to pace these things as well I think pace is very important Um, but but yes I mean I'm trying to set up something I'm based in Toronto now trying to set up something on oral histories over here and one of the things I'm really thinking about is you know how can you share um, community resources and 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 you know maybe even groups um, uh, that have gone through something similar. How can you share that with people if they if they need that um, after? So I think Ismay, may uh, I'd also like to say I think that um, with oral history work with this kind of work, you know, there is a belief that I do completely agree with that sharing can be healing. Right. So a lot of times it's not that if you share that, you know, you will now be overcome with that trauma and it's something, you know, it's pulling you back into something. Yes, that can absolutely happen. A lot of times, though, it will also be cathartic for people to share. But I think it really depends on if they want to share. You can't go to somebody who is choosing not to share for whatever reason it is and push them. Mm and force them to share? I think that is definitely an ethical question. But otherwise, you know, people, especially with women's stories, like a lot of times they've not been heard because of notions of honor and shame, Hmm. right? So um, it can be really important to have a witness to your story, have somebody receive that um, with compassion. Somebody wants to listen. So a lot of times it will actually, people will will want to do that.
0: I'm sure the predominant, uh work is that i think sharing can be healing isliye uh, even alcoholics and on alcoholics anonymous ya groups hote just saying it out acknowledging uh ki yaar yahan dard hai, healing process shuru to once you acknowledge i'm sure that's most of it uh, do cheeze ek to state ka force amnesia. the state wants to enforce the amnesia ki nahi kuch bhi nahi hua chalo do you but, also feel that some people that repression is also a coping mechanism to almost see like, just as a way of survival almost.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think uh, that is very true. Or people will know. It's not like, kuch bhi nahi hua tha, but they will just say, why do I need to go back there? I don't want to. Why are you taking me back there? Right? And I, you have to respect that. Absolutely. I think with women, something I've noticed is that because, um, on their experiences discounted, either the amnesia or the state is homogenized, right? So if you go to the Army Museum in Lahore, there's a gallery in the it talks about rape, it talks about Muslim women's rape at the hands of Hindu and Sikh men. It doesn't talk about you know, uh, um, rape that was perpetrated by Muslims, of course. They are one-sided, hai, but then also talks about women as if they're one homogenous just group right um and they don't have the individual personalities and experiences so i think that one thing i noticed with women is that sometimes they also internalize this notion that we were bystanders um and we were not active participants so the, a lot of times when you go they'll say oh you should speak to my husband they know they were outside um and i think that itself is also like sometimes it's a process of i don't want to go there and sometimes it's also state um kind of you know enforced um you cannot say because if you say then then what does this mean what does this mean for the state but also what does this mean for the community what does this mean for the family so there are lots of different reasons and different factors at play over here uh
0: i will come back to this but it's a very tangential point because i see a lot of these panels at literature festivals do you feel like a uh, women academics tend to even do this where they like this is not my area maine bahut rarely male academics ko ye bolte hue suna hai ki area not, my research you ask the male academics do have an opinion on it whereas sometimes female academics wo chod do you feel like in academia is
1: I think I think it's the research we hear that women will never uh, are must, much less likely to apply for jobs where they don't meet every single criteria, whereas men are much more likely to apply even if they don't meet. You miss
0: you know? 100% of the shots you don't take. Wayne Gretzky, Michael Scott.
1: <laughs> yeah, there you go. So no, I think you are Bill I don't know which one is better though. I don't know if you should speak on everything. I think it's uh, there's something very courageous about saying actually don't know. I think maybe men need to do that more.
0: Um, i think the uh, ma- just meal <laughs> unlearning process main. i'm like i don't know enough, but let me still see <laughs> <laughs> but it's not coming from an educated place so if we we just go back to that uh, women's bodies pay um whether it's nineteen forty seven whether it's nineteen seventy one where it's almost like an organized strategy that women's bodies. fight on women's bodies. So it's so interesting for women to then turn around and be like, no, we're not part of it. Whereas it's their bodies where a lot of this war or this big measuring contest between the two nations was fought on.
1: Absolutely. Women's bodies have always been used to inscribe violence on. Um, and uh, that is a reality, but Again, voi, uh, how do you speak about it? Some things are not speakable. That doesn't mean you don't know. Hmm. That doesn't mean you've forgotten, but they're just not sayable. They're not speakable. They're not narratable. they Then the non-narrated truths that you embody. Yeah. yeah.
0: And even there's so many stories of uh, women of a certain village, who by jumping into the well because the fear is that either the sex or the Muslims will come to the village. And just to avoid that shame...
1: Uh... Yeah, no, I know. I th- this is something I've also been thinking about more recently. Hum, uh, ch- iske mein baat karte hai, it's almost like we are attributing... I don't know if agency is the right word, but this idea that women chose... Um, I, and, you know, we hear this a lot. I've been thinking about this, like when your choices are so limited, is that even choice, right? Are you even choosing to kill yourself? Like, this takes me back to present day Kashmir, actually. Um, You know, line of control pe shelling hoti rehti hai, and um, you know, um, especially if you live in Neelam Valley. So other within bunkers, um, I've written about this previously, there's also, also cases of sexual abuse. So a colleague was interviewing somebody, um, you know, a woman there and she said, you know, Now, when that is your choice, when your choice is, should I stay inside my home where the mortar or shell might kill me? Or should I go and seek refuge in this bunker where my I might be raped or my child might be raped? Is that choice, right? Um, so it's just something I'm thinking about more and more.
0: Yeah. it's even these notions of is that uh which play into this right where sort of even this idea sexual assault i mean it's the man who's the perpetrator who's the criminal but somehow we assume the woman is defamed the woman is now less respectable uh because of this uh i know you that's not the point you're making but it just made me think about this as well kabhi kabhi history mein thoda eulogized bhi kiya jata hai ki again it's not a free choice at all i'm not saying it is but wo likhte se ki kitni bravery dikhai chose death over this do you feel like wo bhi ek male construct likha ja and maybe again this might just be complete conjecture but maybe it's the men who forced them to kill themselves or maybe even push them into the well in certain cases, but wrote history like,
1: who knows Possibly, absolutely. I know that I've interviewed people though who've said uh, you know okay to drown them and then one of the gentlemen I interviewed he said, okay, I couldn't do it at the last moment but uh, so a lot of times of, of course women are being forced into this um, and uh, I think your notion of your sacrifice and martyrdom be here uh, for me I, I don't uh, you know know enough about it but really for me it's connected to the notion of nationalism and nationalism for me is a very masculine um space so this idea of women sacrificing themselves for the honor of the nation quote unquote or for the honor of the community um that honor itself has been you know inscribed on women's bodies by men so all of this is of course very very patriarchal um, and uh, i i don't know whether you know people have uh, fabricated history i'm sure that's also happened I, I can't say anything about that but your notion of izzat kahan se hai, your notion of sacrifice and martyrdom
0: interesting that nationalism is masculine and the nation is a woman uh, the reason i was saying that it might be fabricated is there are actual uh, stories of people butchering the women Kya यार अच्छा ये आने वाले हैं और अब हम गला काटेंगे सबका एक actual stories हैं कि एक, एक, literally I don't know like a house और उसमें सबको जमा करकर lines हैं कि इनके आने से पहले खुद मार सबको
1: बिल्कुल हैं absolutely हैं बहुत ज़्यादा हैं वो
0: this is absolutely not your work, but you feel like thodi reckoning not your reckoning. Because let's say 1947 is a free for all, hai, but you don't come out whole. Nobody comes out whole out of an experience like that. So, if these people who raped, who killed, who massacred are now raising children, what kind of children are you raising?
1: Yeah, I think about this a lot uh, as well. Ke, is level. Of violence hota hai, how do you? How what is the collective trauma of that? And what does collective healing um, look like? You know, and I don't know. I think that now a lot more research is showing ke how trauma is inherited, and I think many of us carry that intergenerational trauma because a lot of these. I mean, also how do you process something of this scale? But uh, I don't know if it's even been attempted of by a lot of you know uh, in a lot of places by a lot of people so wo carry on linger on kar rahe, and comes out in different forms and manifests differently yeah there, there's a that's a lot of scope for research on this I know recently Kafi on psychological impacts of partition pe, bhi hai, there's increasing work which I'm really excited about um yeah um, there's a, there's more that needs to be done
0: I, I think pain diminish so if somebody starts talking about the mental health, effects of partition, people will turn around and be like that mental health. Ki baat kar rahe so wo itna hai, itna hai, ke wo, jab aap, maybe mental health usme, mein hai, people are like baat ho It's just that comparison of pain which should never exist, that comparison of suffering which would never exist, but unfortunately it does. Have you seen that Netflix documentary, I think it's called The Devil Next Door uh, mm-hmm. where so wo, he's called The Devil of Auschwitz? and then and people were like ye grandpa hai. so after auschwitz this person had become this loving grandfather and the family was like bichare, so when people look at their fathers bo, across both or and their grandfathers what do you think how do you think the next generation reckons with this fact that cutest insan in the world, lagte but for a few months, this is what he might have done.
1: I don't know if everybody thinks of that question. Um, I know that, uh, I think it's maybe per state narrative ka kaafi, you know, role hai that hum cho violence of partition, uske baat karte hai, at least in Punjab, where I grew up, you, it's part of your... collective imagination but uh, one-sided violence right so it was always violence um, perpetrated by the hindu and sikh community on muslims and uh, i think that this has also meant that that reckoning of an introspection right? Um, becomes very limited. I know that, um, you know, I've spoken with PhD students in Pakistan and jab, I'll, I'll talk about rape at partition. They'll say, you know, katil kiya hai, but uh, ne rape nahi kiya. And these are PhD students. So I, I don't know. I'm not very, not, not in a very optimistic place these days. I don't know how much of that introspection is, is happening.
0: And jitna criticized criticize dein, state narrative Pakistan studies, it has worked because you're right. Even these little notions, right? Uh, where people we were like, no, it's not to itna in Lahore. And I was like, you town in Model ho. What do you think Model Town was? Why do you think there mandir is in Moderna? How many Hindus now live in Model town? How do you think that happened? That neatly decide why then day buses will come sab chale will go. No. People, uh, I mean, this is a very good play by Asghar Vajahat as well. Those who don't live in Lahore. People literally just to take property away from Hindus. And I'm sure it happened on the other side as well. Massacred people in Lahore. Not even that uh, they go, but that they
1: so A lot of petty rivalries were played out that way. People from the other village came and inflicted violence. But you also see that present day, right? With mm-hmm. a lot of blasphemy cases. A lot of them are on, on property or, or other kinds of...
0: Rivalries um, that get played out under these, you know, um, these so, larger, yeah. There's one need to be conscious that if you're doing other histories, maybe there are fewer people. Even though I saw a documentary, I in a Punjab city was proudly telling me that this is my land, I'm so scared. But I'm assuming most people wouldn't say it out loud. That this is what I did.
1: Yeah, actually, so I've done, you know, quite a few partition interviews. I was thinking about this just the other day that I think there have been one or two people who spoke about killing, Um, but mostly, no, those are not the stories um, you hear. At least I haven't heard them. I think those stories don't come forth as easily for people. And, you know, it is also, I do want to say that there's a lot of trauma um, and there's work done on this, even as perpetrators, like, how do you make sense Mm. of yourself and how do you continue um, after you have engaged in that kind of violence. So I'm not going to say it is easy. It is something that's just completely forgotten. Just because it's not being said does not mean it has been forgotten. I think that's that's important to remember. Um, yeah, some these things can really play on people's conscience um, as well. Yeah.
0: So you're talking about state, jo narrative as you clean cut Do you feel like the collective memories form across the borders, they separate because state narratives separate and we see 1947 as something great to the extent that even if we talk about 9-11, it's a terrible tragedy. But when they build the Freedom Tower, there's also a sense of celebration. Look, we're much more than this. We're free. We stand for freedom. American exceptionalism has a bullshit bhi hai mein, but a positive narrative with But when it comes, but that doesn't mean they don't commemorate every single life lost. The lights go up, the names are there. But when we talk about partition, you're not even allowed that. You're not even allowed that minute of silence. You're not even allowed that second of grief because that might be seen as treason and treachery. You positive not do anything without positive and celebration ke ilawa bhi nahi kar sakte. even if you lost your family. You're not even allowed that little sense of mourning. So our two perspective perspectives that we have a celebration hai, and India maybe sees us as a loss of a limb almost. Do you feel like collective memories jo, across the border for this separate because of the state narratives?
1: Uh, great question. I think master narratives ka bilko impact hota hai at the people's level and on, on people's memory. Uh, but I also think it gradually hora. So if uh, I think back to the interviews I did with partition survivors in Pakistan and then with India, um, I would not say ke, you know the narratives are so different, but I will say that what came forth quicker, faster was often different. So because, as you rightly pointed out, I think Pakistan may partition or independence and, and nation-making, kai na karin wo synonymous ho hai, mm. right? Um, so partition then means, triumph in a sense, because it is a making of the nation. Whereas in India, it is seen as a breakup of the motherland in, in many ways, right? And it has its own implications over there. But in Pakistan, uh, with partition survivors, a lot of times the violence, the, the stories of violence would come forth very, very quickly. And nostalgia, I personally felt I had to probe for. It is there. So that is to say, wipe state. I don't think states are ever you know, completely successful in the national projects. And thank God for that. But, uh, you know, um, it is it, like you, you know, like you just mentioned, it is not seen as something patriotic to say, Ke, yeah, I want to see my home and that's my dying wish. It is there though. So I've recorded many, many interviews like that. But in India, the nostalgia will come forth a little bit quicker. Because the master narrative is of the breakup and uh, and then that plays into the Muslim treachery and disloyalty and has its own very very problematic and grave repercussions. So is, uh, at the partition survivors um, uh, you know level, those memories still exist, but what comes forth quicker. But the younger children in the post-partition generations, I think this is becoming a lot more kind of crystallized, these different narratives um, because now it's been almost 75 years since partition, right? So how do you see it? Um, can you, you know, when I was doing these exchange projects for the citizens archive and I still do them independently now, uh, what does it mean to speak to a Hindu or a Sikh across the border um, when you can only imagine partition through that bloodshed, right? And you, you, you know, you have not heard stories about your grandparents also being rescued many times. Because stories of violence, are also stories of rescue and protection. People risking their lives to save the other. But those stories have not always come forth. So now, what does it mean mm-hmm. to speak about the other or to the other? Um, there's a lot more hostility. So I I do worry that master narratives over time are leaving very deep imprints on, on collective memory. And that means that they're partitioned histories and partitioned narratives in India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. And that has grave consequences. But I still don't think that state narratives are ever entirely successful because the minute you push, the minute you bring in another narrative, especially children, they're very curious. They want to learn, they're inquisitive um and 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 they're willing to you know to be questioned at times as well um so i have hope there
0: i think i don't because if they do and they go on the internet looking for these answers they might find worse answers than the state narrative itself
1: yeah internet is uh no actually very interesting uh, th- th- thank you for pointing this out so india may um history is taught differently uh and until grade 10 Itna zada, it's actually till partition. And then there's not much after that. So unless you opt for history or political science in your higher education, you may not actually be studying about a lot of things. And at first sight, you might think that, okay, uh, maybe that's good because it's the hatred. And this is pre-BJP. I know textbooks are going under revision right now. So maybe, hatred but what I noticed was because of a vacuum, children still have those questions, but where are they going to go? So a lot of times they will go to social media or to these particular blogs um, that have, uh, you know, their own kind of hostile narratives um, uh, or to the media, to mainstream media, to news. Um, and so they're still ha- holding on to these stereotypes. Vacuum yeah. will be usurped by something or the other. So, uh, and that can be very dangerous. I, I do agree with you. That.
0: Like you were even talking about, jinki lived memories, hai, they have context. So even as the state tries saying something, they have context. in the, istana se thi. We, people who are growing up and have taught this linear narrative, which never exists in history, but somehow package it, Mohammed bin Qasim then Mughal, then And I think probably the worst thing we do is not teach any decolonialism. British criticism to not in our history. में. India is seen as the enemy, which uh, sort of British, by design by chance, get out of jail free card, but we don't see that's not how history played out. I think after 2001, ke baad, uh, Western Front, pe we had to confront to this idea where people are like, wait, Durand Line border, So till 65, a lot of people who were living on the borders lived like that. Ab to pigeon, bhi chali jahe, it's a national crisis. But they didn't conceive of that nation state yeah, imagined community, which Benedict Anderson calls it. To state your top level per
1: enforce karna I completely agree with you. And I think we, it's independence, but because we don't teach uh, British you know, colonial history, so it becomes independence from quote unquote Hindu India right now. So uh, that's a fundamental problem. And absolutely, till 65, war, tatt especially, there was a lot of uh, crossover. People, you know, borders were a lot more porous. These things have become more. Hardened over time. And much time people ask, even when they see you know um, Pakistan ka map with Erszwele, uh, East Pakistan and West Pakistan and this division. And I know that it seems really absurd today, right? But I'm very cautious with calling it absurd because I think when you do, you make 1971 inevitable. And if you treat it as inevitable, then there's no introspection. You know, but what was the, you know, what were the what was the role of the Pakistani state and policies? We don't introspect on that. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, uh, it was actually not so absurd because borders and partition was imagined very differently. You even have like Chinnah left his home and Mumbai locked. I don't think it was imagined that you will never be able to cross over. And it wasn't like that in the initial years either. Now it's become like that. So now the idea of thousand miles of India in between East and West Pakistan seems ridiculous. Um, but uh, even at the people's level, this is a story I've quoted a lot, but uh, I remember interviewing this one woman and she said, Mera you know oranges. Uh, so I, I think it was a lot of people left their homes locked uh, overnight uh, because of the violence and they thought they were going to go back and they could never go back. It remains their dying wish. So we have done or reconstruct or borders. I
0: recently kab, kisi kaha and I was like, this is very good food for thought. I have not research ka. But somebody said that partition was not even afforded to people of a certain class. So if you were poor. In India or Pakistan, you still need... Okay, you could have a small house or yeah, something. And Pakistan, I'm sure you face this as well. It's almost become a joke. comes, they say, India. We were Mughal. says that we on the Aisa nahi bolta hum road. Pe <laughs> Everybody makes it seem like we were the and we were But do you feel like there's any truth to this, that to a certain class, just even packing up and leaving, It wasn't, that wasn't even an option. They were too poor to even do that. So only people of certain class uh, could even afford packing up and leaving.
1: I think a a partition absolutely impacted people across different social classes very differently. Um, I think it just manifested differently for them in the sense that some people were able to fly or or take a train, um, you know, and other people walked. So I interviewed somebody who walked for over a month. Right? Um, so I think it played out differently for people based on the privilege that you had. And this then of course applies to caste and to other, um, yeah, uh, identities as well. So of, yeah, who had privilege and who did not. I, I think people did have to leave, where there was violence they had to flee. Um, but how they you know, flee and whether they had any protection or not, obviously depends on your privilege, yeah.
0: Um- so you mentioned 71 as well. I think India may a greater India ka bahut concept. Hai. But greater Pakistan, almost like you laugh when people say that when they mention East Pakistan or he kuch petty hain uh, last December were also like East Pakistan. And I think in 2021, if you're calling Bangladesh, East Pakistan uh, you need to come off your high horse. But do you feel like a greater Pakistan ki articulation hai, it's only done as a response to the greater India articulation. And as such, Hamare our memory or our notion, mein, currently, that idea that this was Pakistan almost doesn't exist. I don't think Pakistan even, like a child Pakistani, as such considers or even remembers that Bangladesh was one part of Pakistan.
1: Yeah, I think ke, uh, nationalism so is are pitted against each other and defined in opposition to each other and, uh, you know, they, they're always responding to each other. So hai, ke Pakistan will respond to Indian nationalism and Indian narrative. But yes, absolutely. I know for instance, even when I was growing up, right? Like 71 or Bangladesh was at the periphery of my imagination, What is a simple narrative. I still remember, you know, growing up with that, India and Pakistan are two wars and one we win, one we win. Um, 65 uh, we have that narrative of course right um so and that's it it was brushed away and it's the same thing with younger school children today because i was teaching in pakistan um you know o levels may kuch better hain kitabe, hai, that they focus on it a little bit more than the uh, government textbooks but even there By the time you give your exam and after the summer, you come to the next class, most students have forgotten because about rote learning, you know, for passing your exam, but other than that, does it register? Does it register what happened? Do we know that history? No, it has been silenced. It has in many ways been erased and it's been replaced with new histories. Um, I won't say complete erasure because I think 71, I think sometimes um, I didn't realize this till I did this book that, we underestimate the importance of 1971 in South Asia, not just in terms of the trauma and the violence, but also in terms of how it has shaped regional relationships and Pakistan's own self identity, its educational policies, its military policies and all Mm -hmm. of that. I do think that complete erasure is not forgotten. It is defining, right? But what we choose to remember, what is permitted um, in that remembrance um, is, is very, very limited, myopic, and of course, distorted.
0: Yeah. I think there's also a rise in insecurity. A lot of these things, when we talk about ideology, a lot of that work was done post-71. So even the idea of Muhammad bin Qasim as the first Muslim, which is untrue, but we needed a militant entry of Islam into Pakistan or into this region. So a lot of that work, of ideology and replacing history with ideology was done post-1971.
1: Why though, right? I mean, that's an interesting question. Like, why would we need to do that? Because you have to rehabilitate nationalism. Yeah. Um, and, and how do you do that after, you know, a huge part of your country is no longer part of your country, they fought for the liberation, right? How do you do that? So then you have to construct of course, and you have to revise textbooks. And I think absolutely, this anti-Hindu slant in our textbooks, um, you know, it, it has a long history. But it definitely accelerates after that. And, and the idea of Muslim versus Hindu um, also accelerates, because 1971 till present day is taught as an Indian or a Hindu conspiracy, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And it is- So
0: is 71, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, 1971 absolutely, Indian or Hindu conspiracy. It is presented as a a revenge for 1947. So going back to this idea of breaking up India, it is seen Mm -hmm. as India's revenge for partition. Um, And so textbooks get revised and a lot of other policies get revised as well. I really think that the learning from 1971, if there is any, was never again, never again. Um, you know, we should have been stronger, mightier, yeah. rather than introspecting on on the very, very flawed. Is a very light word to use, as military policies. The the reaction was that we should have been stronger, mightier. Yeah. What uh, what do we mean when we say that when so many people were killed by
0: by state violence? So yeah. I forgot, but किसी ने कहा and Musharraf said things like, uh, and I, Ali Usman Kasmi keeps quoting this as well, that we have such technology that we will drones and bombs you not know. So yes, you're absolutely right. I think we've learned a completely different lesson. Seekha. And it's a tacit understanding. Oh, obviously, nobody will ever come out and say it, but that two-nation theory ki at least weakening ho jati 1971 ke baad ke wait agar hum musliman the aur hum alignment chahiye ab to nahi hai ab to three nations hai so that ground norm changing to hmm. a desperation of ke ab is borders ko aur bunker down ab that insecurity ke kuch aur na ho then we had to come up with these notions no no pakistan always existed pakistan wasn't born in 1947 the moment Mohammed bin qasim stepped pakistan was created so trying to find uh, justification for Pakistan in this region. Uh, I think that insecurity led to this nationalization project.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The Sari escalate You know, Pakistan, Bangladesh's creation is not the demise of Pakistan in a sense because Pakistan is not about a territory. It is an idea much larger to that. I mean, these were notions that were already present very much so, but after 1971, they take on a new. Meaning a new importance um, to to de-link it to to territory in that sense. So, वो and, um, and yeah, here we are. इसमें
0: racism कितना important hai because kabhi ho, that colonial idea and य Punjab पंजाब but है they've always considered Bengali is less than yeah.
1: This comes from again, yeah, the colonial notion, the martial race theory, um, you know, that Punjabis are considered the martial race and Bengalis were considered the non-martial race. And there were, uh, you know, all this racial discourse that was deployed, idea that the, uh, Bengalis are weaker, um, smaller, shorter. These are all like derogatory language being used, um, you know, being seen as lazy. Um, and, and that's why I actually think, yeah, the idea of Bangladesh being created, it is, you know, I'm borrowing from this Haitian anthropologist, um, uh, Trillio, who says it is unthinkable history. I think it remained unthinkable that these people who, in your discourse, you see as inferior can fight for their liberation and they can win. Right, and that remains unthinkable. The only way you can justify it is by saying, nah, India can involve now uh, So then the whole discourse becomes about India. And that is a very problematic because it becomes another bilateral Indo-Pak conflict. Right, and Bengalis are almost ejected from that narrative. Um, we see it as a third Indo-Pak war. And this is something that's very much resented in Bangladesh actually, that this was a people struggle and, uh, you know, even in India, the grand narrative of India defeating the Pakistan army and Pakistan's own narrative, right? In both of those, the Bengalis are the ones that, and of course, other ethnic minorities, indigenous people, they get overshadowed in that narrative, in this hegemonic narrative. Yeah.
0: Even in the iconography, right? The pictures are Indian army, Pakistan army. Uh, is there any truth to this, that General Niyazi was also like, that we will surrender to India, we will not surrender
1: Nice has been you know, of work, um, Bangladesh worked on it as well. Naim mohammed he was um, at the conference that took place recently at NYU as well on the surrender photograph, and I'd encourage everybody um, to read that work. But yes, this idea that, um, you know, again, just seeing it through the frame of India, Pakistan, Bengalis, how could they win? I think it's something that is, remains um, just very difficult to come to terms with. Yeah. So if you go to museums, you look at textbooks, the focus will be on the India narrative. Cheize, you know, even for instance, the language movement in textbooks is mentioned as the very last point. So I saw this debate on social media recently, I think hume, uh, ki bahut hai. something I've, learned more recently is ke silencing sort of erasure ke through hoti Erasure is not the only way of silencing, right? There are different techniques that can be used. And there are different techniques that are used when it comes to 71 in Pakistan. a number game, hoti hai, right? Aap you know, a community cage of violence, has maximized, and those community can minimize, kar and then you say that look, violence was on both sides. Ek neutralize neutralized. And if you want to talk about violence, well, you can talk about this violence, but you can't talk about this violence, mm-hmm. right? You can't talk about state-led violence. Ek wo hai. And the second thing is that you have to foreground, to background. Karte hai. Hai, mention mentioned but it is almost like a footnote right, central focus, that remains India in these textbooks. So I think, and then the multiple other ways as well, but I think it's just important to remember it is not, it is, not, it is, not, it is, not, it is very much there in our collective memory also in our state narrative also, but what are we speaking about? What are we permitted to remember and how does, how does the parameter of like the, how do the parameters of what we can remember also define the parameters of what cannot be remembered and what cannot be said? That's I mean, something. I
0: mean, जो लोग ये argue करते हैं, उनसे पूछें कि कैसी लगी आपको Lums में conference हुई 1971 scholars How was that? So if nobody is silencing, जिस conference that आप बात कर रहे हैं, वो NYU ने क्यों होस्ट की और वो Lums ने क्यों नहीं And Musharva Zaidi also had a great tweet on this that. People who make these decisions also shoot themselves in the foot. Uh, the, originally, Lamso was hosting the conference. Maybe they would have had a smaller audience. Now, eventually, when NYU hosted, they have a bigger, larger global audience. So if your idea was to keep this under wraps or silence this, you've only managed to amplify their voices even more.
1: Well, people who are going to talk about it are going to talk about it. So, Yeah.
0: I हम हम, ना ना, हम अपने घर में जिसको कर सकते हैं कर सकते हैं बाहर आ uh, I don't know what the plan is कि North Korea internet access How can you possibly not remember? I mean, uh, but you बहुत लोगों ने पूछे factual the numbers that you're saying a lot of people were like can you factually objectively tell us how many people were killed uh, and I think the three million figure is revered in Bangladesh and our uh, Munir report may 50, fifty to seventy thousand or something like that. I think if I'm not.
1: The one Commission report mentions twenty-six thousand, and uh, so the. But I think this this question itself, like, what do we want to do with these numbers? Is the point of numbers, you know, using numbers to say? that the violence wasn't bad or the violence wasn't genocide um, because I think that's how numbers are used. So I'm very cautious about those questions themselves and where they're coming from. Yeah.
0: I think with genocide, you describe it as right? genocide number three, whereas genocide is not numbers as such. Like for instance, if Shia genocide is in Pakistan or I would still call it genocide because they're being targeted and killed specifically because they're Hazaras. Mm-hmm. So if... Mm-hmm. An entire state which in that moment was against its own people is targeting people specifically for being of a certain community. That's pretty much genocide.
1: Yeah, as I mean, it's targeted to killing, it's it's cleansing. And uh, I mean, there, there, there is a definition of genocide. If anyone's interested, you just have to Google that, right? But I think also within definitions, we have to always know that there are limitations to definitions um, as well. And people's experiences cannot be so neatly packaged in um to these categories so the whole question of like if it meets this number mm-hmm. then we can call it this otherwise we cannot i mean uh, sure if you want to get into that theoretical argument of definitions i mean that is very different but uh if in that process you want to discount what happened to people so i think like i've been saying this recently like you know when you inflict violence on somebody there's that violence and then when there's a denial of that violence for me i'm increasingly thinking about this it's another form of violence Right. So if you want to use numbers to deny or discount or trivialize somebody's pain and suffering, right, um, then I have a lot of questions about that.
0: I think murders, killings, genocide, we probably accept I think whatever you can is the notion of the organized rape.
1: Yeah. I
0: think people in Pakistan mein, like, we can't accept this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's something we don't at all address or talk about. Um oral histories, mein aata hai. Kahi na kahi, you know, I think again there's a big difference between uh, master narratives and efforts at the state level to homogenize the narrative or the erasure of 1971 and then. Uh, obviously people are people and history is never homogenous and um, it will always vary and there are also people who were living in you know uh, earths while East Pakistan present day Bangladesh uh, prior to 1971 they had relationships with uh, you know uh, Bengali people so their memories and their experiences some of them were there during 1971 so you will find all other kinds of you know narratives as well you also I think but uh, within Pakistan as well it was a very small movement there was a movement of resistance um, during 1971 against the military, you know, operation, uh, military action, as it's called, Um, and there were poets involved, Uh, there were people even within the army, Um, there were other activists, you know, um, and and many of them continued to write, so it's not something that finished in 1971. So I think, you know, it's important to remember that as we're talking about these master narratives within the civilian population, I think, resistance and I really wish that more and more of us, I wish I knew that sooner, because I think it's something that gives you a lot of uh, you know, courage, I think, as well. Um, that throughout uh, through the most difficult of times, there have been people who went went to jail, people were arrested, you know, but they did it. Um, so
0: it's who our heroes are, right? Like these are our heroes and people who are conscientious objectors. They, they're forgotten to history. Whereas Air Force, there some people who to that you're bombing India. You're not bombing Bangladesh. And that's that's the only way they could come to terms with that. Because, okay, we're, Hindu, we're bombing But they couldn't even fathom that we're we're bombing. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, who we decide to make our heroes and... Uh, uh, ajeeb I don't think you might have an answer for this, but I've been thinking about this. I even wrote a very short play. I'll send it to you after this. It's called the inherited journey. It's on the same anecdote, uh, waiting for it, But it's a short play. 47 The people who migrated east, a lot of them migrated west back into India in 71. And then they had to go back. So that search for home, of happiness but do you think there is any uh, truth to this idea that you have a connection to your land? So, if you're displaced, it's not that simple. You can take all that culture and come. You lose something when you lose that connection to the land, even if you're the next generation. So, if you're a displaced community, you lose something.
1: Absolutely. I think you absolutely lose something. And I think a lot of partition survivors, other people are very aware of that. The children feel it too. Like a lot of times, you know, children, younger people will say, I remember school holidays, mein, everybody had somewhere to go back to. They would say, hum apne rahe or, hum apne, you know, ya uh, wherever city we're going to. But I had never had any place to go because what was, you know, what was our ancestral place was now, you know, in a hostile um. Country, uh, quote unquote, seen as perceived as, right? So I think, wo bilko loss, hota over time, loss of language, bhi hoti hai, loss of heritage, bhi hoti hai, Like a lot of the, the Sikh community, I'm very happy about the Kritarpur corridor, um, but they have been longing for years, right, um, to come. So there's so much that's lost, both the tangible and the intangible. Also, just the idea of not being able to go back, there's a difference when you choose and you know, you relocate. Mm-hmm. Many people do that and, you know, you can always go back and visit whatever is home for you. There's a big difference between that and being told that this, the ties have been severed and you can never look back. You can never go back. Um, that is that that kind of uprooting. I mean, imagine if that happened to us today. You can never go back. It happens to so many people on on going around the world, everywhere, you know.
0: I think Deenshaar so, or as podcast it will happen to me. <laughs> Because <laughs> I still live in Karachi. It might, it still might. Uh Allah, na kere, Allah hum So when you do uh, these oral narratives in Bangladesh, do you get a sense that they ever felt uh, an ownership over the idea of Pakistan? Because the way they were treated, just bhi zikr Ki Hame bas India ne Plan Banaya, 1971 man, Bangladesh came to be. We never talk about how we treated them 1947 to 71. And uh, but as I'm going there and saying that uh, Bengali will not be the national language, Urdu will be in the national language. There nahi a homogenous population. Something like 99% spoke Bengali. Why would you enforce Urdu on them? So that Bengali identity crystallizing into uh, Bengali sovereignty. What are people's history of Forty-seven to seventy-one. Did they feel like they were equal parts of this nation? Did they feel home?
1: Yeah. So I can't, of course, I can't speak for everybody. But I'll tell you what I've learned and in the interviews that I've done. Um, I think eight. important. thing here. That we we don't remember this a lot in Pakistan. That East Bengal, present day Bangladesh, played a critical role in the formation of Pakistan. Mm-hmm the 1946 elections um and you know I mean Muslim League is founded in dhaka so they have no idea uh, school children in Pakistan where was Muslim League found Dhaka is the last place on earth that they will probably name unfortunately right there's been an erasure of that history so did they feel an ownership over Pakistan I think many of them did you know, for uh, for different reasons, their own reasons for supporting partition. Um, you know, a lot of people say it was not so much the two nation theory there, but economic reasons. Whatever those were, there was a support for the Muslim League um, and uh, there was a lot of belief and hope um, resting in the idea of Pakistan, this idea of emancipation, this idea of empowerment. And I also think that when you record people's histories, you realize that history books mein ye kuch dates hoti hai, right in which these key events take place. But for people, those shifts happen at very different moments. Yeah. So I know that for, you know, within the same family, um, maybe some of the younger generation, like jo the, uh, you know, who were involved in the student activism, for them, the idea of Bangladesh took place earlier than it did for their parents and grandparents who may have really supported the Pakistan movement because it was very hard to let go of that idea also of you know, this, this struggle and this belief in, in, in Pakistan and, and uh, you know, the fact that their rights were being violated. So I think we need to start with that idea. That's where I think that Treating it as inevitable from a Pakistani perspective is very problematic. Yes, in Bangladesh, a lot of people will now like. I think 47 is not really spoken about there. 1947 partition because 71 has taken much mm-hmm. more importance. 1952 language movement where you know students are killed that becomes a very important marker as well. 47 is not so important, um, but uh, but yeah. So I think uh, from from their perspective, uh, you know, partition is seen as a delay in the in the actual emancipation for for a lot of people. But as a Pakistani to treat it as inevitable is very problematic because then you're ignoring this long history of of Muslim League in Bengal and the support uh, the Pakistan movement had. And I think that's very critical to start with because then you need to inquire, well, what happened between 47 and 71? I think maybe
0: a better way of phrasing would be what West Pakistani state did nineteen forty seven till nineteen seventy one. That made an inevitable. Not that it was an inevitability of history, but ham jo kar rahe the, sustainable nahi tha. Wo seventy one seventy two eighty one hota. Wo
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, you know, but so when it comes to now looking back at that history, um, there are different moments, right? Like 1965, the language movement, of course, from mm. 48 to 52 students are killed. So that is a, a really important part of that history. Um, and this this feeling of not being treated as equal, right? And being denied that, that right, that linguistic right. And I think language is also more than just about language, it's also about culture. We know that for instance, like Tagore was banned at some point as well. So it is also about, yeah, right. It's about so much yes.
0: more. Alama um, national poet maybe isliye that people don't realize how much better of a poet Tagore is.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's the idea of banning, and I mean, you know, to go with somebody who also wrote against the idea of nationalism, but then he becomes this uh, this nationalistic hero almost because he's being banned, um, you know? So I would just want to say the language is a lot more than, uh, it's very symbolic and it it's very culturally rooted. So the 1965 war may as well, you know, um, uh, East Pakistan, uh, which was then East Pakistan, of course, was not protected. Um, So that also created a lot of feelings and the multiple other things, I don't want to get into the whole history of it, but multiple other moments that are happening and people are being reminded um, that they don't really belong. You know, I interviewed some um, Bengalis who had come to Lahore for education and they would talk about kind of the everyday discrimination and the things that would be said um, to them and about them. So these are constantly happening. And then, you know, the elections and, and then the transfer power um, and, and things really then get heated and escalated. And, but there's a long history of that. It didn't happen overnight. Um, there's a whole buildup to what happened
0: in 71. Yeah. Now, recently, Dr. Ilhan podcast Ujair, So he was talking about that our budgets are pro-poor because we still think of our economy as extractive. We still have that colonial construct to we extract wealth. So that's how we treated West Bengal. So even when we talk about decade decade of development, Ayub Khan, yes, you extracted all that wealth, all that they were producing, and then you didn't give them anything. There are a lot of these small anecdotes as well. Uh, I think Yaya Khan that toilet He was like, uh, Even these little things, right? In Pakistan, he be like, I don't think a lot of people have questioned why you call it Why is... Taka considered nothing yeah, because Bangladesh. Something I didn't even know Bonga is a word you say to somebody who's stupid in Pakistan. That's a racial slur against Bengal, people from Bangladesh. I I didn't even know that till quite recently. So a lot of these cultural notions less resources there's only so much you can push people or repress people till it rises. Do you feel like we haven't learned those lessons and we're making the same mistakes in GPK and Balochistan and Sindh even to a certain extent.
1: I think that if you um, look, when I say that there's a focus on India, that does not mean that India was not involved in the war, India was involved in the war, right? But when that becomes the be all and end all of the conversation, right, then you are not looking at your own internal policies forget, I mean, I'm not even talking about the state-led violence in 1971, I'm talking about everything that happened Mm. before that as well, right? You are just not coming to terms with that, and if you don't come to terms with that, of course, you're going to keep seeing that being played out. I mean, our uh, our, our past, no matter how much you know anyone tries, cannot be erased. Right? your past will continue to haunt you and play out um, in in your present day uh, politics. And and I think that's also important to remember that Bengali asking for these rights, right? Like, uh, there are also other movements, uh, you know, ethnic movements um, for rights. Essentially, this all began with the question of rights, right? Yeah whether it's Sindhi rights or Balochi rights or, or Pashtun rights, right? So, um, and, and I think that that question for some reason, that question or that movement for rights is so threatening. Um, and, and then the, the response is to, to repress it and or, or then to you know, use these terms um, like Indian state-sponsored terrorism. And I think this is very dangerous and it is not something that only Pakistan is doing. Of course, India does this in Kashmir all the time. Right? Legitimate movements for rights become painted as Pakistan state sponsored terrorism or Indian state sponsored terrorism. And it's such a heavy label. Firstly, the minute you use terrorism, you're depoliticizing in a sense, the movement, right? You are saying it's a terrorist movement. Um, that's it, the discourse ends over there. So what are you doing to those, to those genuine struggles, to those genuine experiences, to people's voices um, under these big labels you're imposing? So I think that continues absolutely, and I think that 71 uh, ke baad, uh, we've only seen more and more of that, this tit for tat, you mm. know, battle. Yeah, that's why, I, like I said at the beginning, I realized how much of what is happening in Kashmir today kind of goes back to 1971.
0: Yeah, It's that two large colonial legacies, India-Pakistan ki jo hai, bureaucracy or military it's using Bangladesh as a pawn between a war between mm-hmm. them. It's using Kashmir as a pawn. That uh, no agency Even when maybe Pakistan, men that Kashmir free. I don't think the state is interested in an in independent Kashmir. I don't think Pakistan is going to give up Gilgit baltistan in- India has pretty much occupied uh, So those Kashmiri people, are the ones who have the least agency and voice in this and it's they should be the ones who should have the most agency and voice so yeah colonial construct yeah absolutely and the, the settler colonialism continues no. yeah so, you
1: yeah.
0: yeah. the equation of violence was interesting because even when in people in Pakistan now talk about balochi is being targeted. There is a response, which says, mein kuch they're also killed for being Punjabi. So ek hi baat hai. And I never really equated that idea that oh, this is what is happening. They're trying to equate the violence on the good people on both sides. Yeah,
1: yeah. I think interesting because I think about um, Abhi, you know, the discourse that was happening on social media, a lot of Pakistanis engaged in it. Um, Palestine Major the, mm-hmm. the violence over there. Kashmir the violence over there. We are cognizant of the fact that state-backed violence, right? And any violence, you know, um, carried out by individual groups, by people, cannot be equated absolutely 100% agree with that, right? You can't equate Israel, you know, state-backed violence um, against Palestinian people because uh, mm-hmm. that's what happens. Like, that's what happens on, on TV and, and, and mainstream discourse that you can equate ke wo bhi to violence. Karte hai, to what, does, what choice does the Israeli state have? No, you cannot equate uh, state machinery-led violence, right? With, with people's violence at all, ever. But when it comes to Pakistan, uh, when it comes to our own internal issues, we're not able to use that same framework, right? We then start to equate, we then start to say that, you know, uh, Belochi people also resort to violence. So, you know, maybe it's justified, what can the state do? So the minute you equate those two, state violence and, and people's violence, you know, then we are then there's a big fundamental problem with that. And then I want to ask, why don't you extend that you know, to Kashmir, you don't because you know that Indian state violence cannot be equated with a young Kashmiri boy picking up a stone or picking up a gun. We know that and that's absolutely true. It cannot be equated, but it also cannot be equated within Pakistan then. So this equation is fundamentally problematic. Yeah.
0: Here you have ideological divide. That's so ironic that even people who are of well, probably not them, but a lot of these bucks which call social media, they became very pro-Israel just because it was seen as a Muslim Jewish conflict, which also is reducing that conflict. Uh, so that that Indian social media support for Israel was also strange. It's
1: not even strange. It's just it's appalling. It's appalling that you can endorse state violence on any you know population, regardless of your politics, regardless of. Yeah,
0: anything else. It's just, it's appalling. For it's, it's that same, right? If you show for instance, think of the worst thing that's happened. Our 9-11 is APS. We never really questioned what our strategy was post-APS. So if we started bombing people, if we people Israel, kids before they're dropped, we did that post-APS, bombs were signed. Pictures were taken. Uh, it was said this is in memory of them, and bombs were dropped. I don't know how many people died. I don't know what happened. But Hamari acceptance thi. I think that was celebrated in Pakistan. Similarly, when it comes to Kashmir, the idea that इनमें से terrorists हैं. justify है। Stone pelleting is justify violence is justify internet is justified, the justify occupation is justify Just the idea that तीन are terrorists
1: yeah,
0: I mean, I don't even know what to say. I just, yeah. Uh, I also had a very Angel's point earlier on when you're talking about Bangladesh and our histories. It's so interesting that we, talk about Pakistan. we keep trying to find uh, a reason for existence of Pakistan in history. Whereas when we talk about 71, we don't say that. We don't say that identity. Pakistani identity has always existed and somehow in our minds. Bangladesh was born out of nowhere in 1971.
1: Out of the the Indian conspiracy, yeah. And, you know, I mean, when I was growing up and I think a lot of school children still believe this today based on my conversations that I was under the impression that Bangladesh had a, you know, Hindu majority. Um, And because, and the reason I I say this is because I think post partition in India and in Pakistan, there's been an equation between religious identity and national identity right? So Mm -hmm. a lot of Hindus in Pakistan today will be called Indians, would be referred to as Indians, right? Uh, Muslims in in India will be told to go back, right? And all other kinds of, you know, derogatory, you know, languages used. So the idea that if East Pakistan had a majority Hindu population, the culture was so influenced by Hinduism, in a sense, then what it's doing is it's almost creating this justification that if they've always, Hindu, then they were closer to India than they were to Pakistan. And so then obviously this had to happen and then India played its part. And in fact, even in in textbooks, you know, repeatedly this narrative of um, Hindu teachers corrupting and molding the mind of Bengali youth. So, it was cemented her frame, uh, you know, of of seeing this as an Indian Hindu conspiracy and the two being equated. So, Hindu Bengalis just being seen as Indians. Right, and therefore being seen as anti-Pakistan because they're pro an enemy state. So I think unfortunately Bahir nahi nikle, and uh, and you know then when we are willing to talk about the violence, like if you go into the army museums today, which recently inaugurated hoya, usme balki gallery hai seventy one So again, not in Eurasia, but other than you know you have a whole wall covered in this plaque saying Indian state-sponsored terrorism. So and then we're using the term genocide now, but we're only talking about genocide and I quote her for pro-Pakistani, so people who supported the Pakistan army, the violence um, that they experienced. So Wo, these are these are the two three things that we are willing to focus on. India's role was the um, non-Bengali population. You what know, violence the And uh, in terms of dates, we are also willing to look at everything that happened before March 25th, which is the night that the operation was launched, the military operation, and everything after that kind of just fast forwards. Um, and then you just create, get Bangladesh's creation in 1971, you know, uh, December 16th.
0: I Operation Searchlight was also launched at a university and teachers were targeted the first night violence. Uh, I forgot exactly which si university thi. so So that is by design. Hota hai. So Even here, we leaders or uh, teachers or academics when they are targeted, they by design. Ho hota hai. So you've, spoke, you've, you've done work in Punjab, you've done work in Kashmir, you've done ba- work in Bangladesh. Do you feel that notions of identity... One idea a colonial constructor that you can be only one. You can't be three identities, you can't be four identities. There is only one uh And pa- maybe in this region, whether it's gender identity, whether it's sexual identity, whether it's national identity, whether it's even linguistic identity. Urdu do not force it because our linguistic identities were multiple multiple. So it's a lot more fluid. But when you do this work, you feel like, Punjab, ne thoda readily adopt that Pakistan identity, even to the extent of relegating the Punjabi identity. Punjabi language could relegate So those notions of identity, how do you think they differ between talking to people in Punjab, Kashmir, and Bangladesh? Well,
1: wow, that's a difficult question. I think Punjab is a, a curious case in the sense of it's been at the forefront of Pakistani nationalism. Mm-hmm. And so in some ways, it's it's kind of had to shun its own Punjabi culture. Um, and it's mm-hmm. my language, like I was not taught Punjabi because, you know, it's considered quote unquote as not cultured, not civilized. And we know recently in the past few years, I think a school ka case where they sent out pronounce. a yeah, they sent out a circular and Usme, you know, said don't use foul language. And I think one of the examples given was Punjabi. So I think, of course, it's maybe a resistance movement here. There are Punjabis, um, you know, who protest and who resist this and who are talking about the importance of language. Um, I think homogenous kabibi kuchmi ni hota. But uh, Kashmir and Bangladesh, of course, are very, I mean, I don't even think I can give a small answer because the things are so complicated, but it's very, very different. Um, Bangladesh, I know now one of the new questions is also how, you know, um, how do you bring into the fold of narrative and discourse uh, the indigenous people? Uh, chakma people you know other uh, other ethnic minorities uh, in bangladesh is also movement on, at this on the civil society front to recognize the violence tha, you know on non bengalis as well again not equating you can't equate you can't equalize but so i think there are questions of this like you know what does it mean to be bangladeshi can is it can it be reduced to only bengali right uh, what what happens then to other people In Kashmir, of course, it's a very different question because this Pakistani or Indian identity for a lot of people has been superimposed by these nation states as well. So, then, you know, how does Kashmiri identity come out in response to that? But I think within these, you know, broader identities, like you mentioned yourself, like gender and, you know, all of those other layers come in as well. So, yeah.
0: I mean, don't give a small answer. Please do give a strong answer. Nadim Zaman panel parent maybe argue kar Bangladeshi identity crystallized into Bangladeshi sovereignty. So uh, that do you feel like they have a stronger sense of their own identity, which uh, I'm not not to say we didn't. But we have readily accepted the Pakistan project. Liya and I get that pre partition, de- uh, Bengal was at the forefront. And mainly the biggest contention between Congress and Kaidazm was also the division of the provinces, Punjab, Bengal being the big ones. And there was a discussion about what and arguing. Let's not get into that. But notions of bang- Bangladeshi identity, do you feel like 47 to 71? Because they were being repressed, there was a reaffirmation of that identity.
1: I think what the Hot repression, you hold on to identity much more, right? So absolutely Bengali language and culture, that is something that I mean, if you compare it to Punjab, Punjab, um, you know, we consider it as again uncultured, uncivilized. So both are absolutely here. There's a celebration of that. Um, but uh, but then there are also other questions like I'm saying, you know, like does how does Bangladeshi and Bengali kind of collapse into one identity um, and what happens if you're not non- bengali Bangladeshi So I did interview some people who were married like Punjabi married to a Bengali. so what does that mean post 1971 um, you know in terms of your identity in terms of how the nation state sees you? Um, we know that the you know thousands of uh, uh, urdu speaking populations, some of them, who still are waiting for Pakistan to repatriate them. Uh, they continue to live in, in refugee camps. So Vo, I just mean that there are lots of other questions that have been raised um, post-1971, like they have been raised within Pakistan. I think these questions don't get resolved, right? Like up jitna bhi ek Pakistani nationalism that you have to subscribe to, you will always have ethnic identities um, contesting that idea. So that resistance will be there. I think that resistance is also there um, in Pakistan, within Pakistan too yeah but it's it's not
0: just some people reaffirming or reasserting right It's not mein aapne bhi kaha. uh recently twitter cancel ho ga because i said something very similar i said ke uh, meri personal tragedy that i've been kept from my own history i've been kept from my own people because i was not taught sindhi i went to o levels a levels even though metric jaati, lete, but I don't have that connection, right? Growing up, when I thought of great plays, uh, great poetry, I only had white people in mind. I thought Shakespeare was the greatest writer of all time. I didn't have Now, when i was trying to connect back, there was a part of me that was completely lost to me. And I blamed the state for the nationalization project that a rupture of identity. And people are like, you're blaming the state unnecessarily. And I was like, no, it absolutely is the nationalization project. incident English supremacy But we don't ever really question that teen classes are. English, ke baad Urdu bhi aati hai. So if you're somebody who's from a village in Punjab or Sindh or KP or Belusa, and you can't speak Urdu, you resources, your opportunities come. Because a lot of people on Twitter are of a certain class, they haven't faced that discrimination. So they're less likely to accept that.
1: Yeah, no, I think this erasure of your mother tongue, of your language, again, like I was saying with Bengali, it is symbolic of much more than language because when you take away somebody's language, you're taking away poetry, you're taking away uh, other forms of expression, right? Other, yeah, just, um, it it, it you're taking away a culture essentially.
0: And it also ingrains that idea of impurity complex, right? you're you're taking away somebody's identity, you're taking away somebody's agency to enslave them. Whereas, But was whereas Bulleshaw was more progressive than their poets in their times. But if you can't even read Bulle Shah, let alone understand his philosophy, you will keep thinking that we're
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: And your work, sorry, go for it.
1: No, I was going to say, if I can just actually read something that Dr. Tariq Raman said about language, but it might give, take me a minute to just find the right page. So, so Dr. Tariq Raman, um, he said, language is a way of communication, but it is also a symbol of identity. It communicates more than words. It communicates a people. And if you look down upon a language, there are many things that you don't want to do using it. You don't want to speak in it. If you speak in it, you make no effort to correct your pronunciation. You don't want to hear it. If you hear it, you make no effort to understand it. These are the various ways in which you are given cues that your language is not worthy. The linguistic ideology is such that if you value a language, you will try your best to speak it, read its literature, to pronounce it as well as the native speakers, and make all efforts to try and understand it. Even when Bengali was declared a national language, it continued to only be used there in East Pakistan and not here in West Pakistan. So it wasn't national in that sense. And when West Pakistanis went to East Pakistan, they never learned Bangla. And if they did, they spoke it like englishmen arrogant Englishmen. Obviously the Bengalis didn't like this. If you speak their language only to give them commands, it means you're treating them like servants. So I think this just captures, yeah, uh, a lot of what
0: we've been talking about uh, for me. Um, yeah, absolutely. We uh, recently said I key about debate bhi hori, and Shahram had a great point that it's also political, what you decide is a language. So the erasure yeah. of Sarai's Sira- identity is not yeah. a dialect. It's yeah, a language. Hai nahi.
1: Absolutely. So yeah. When is the
0: language a language? People are also asking about the apology uh, do you feel like well I mean of course we should but what's your take on this entire idea that our truth and rekiljin saliation apology is very
1: Okay, so here's what I'll say. I think that this is interesting that this conversation question and comes up in a lot of conversations between Pakistanis. I would like to say firstly that I think when violence is inflicted on somebody, um, what they want should hold paramount important. So what I think as a Pakistani or what any of us think as Pakistanis is probably far less important. Um, That's the first thing I will say. The second thing is that a lot of times people will say, that apology has And yes, you know, in different forms, different ways, regret and remorse has been expressed, right? But I also think it's important to remember that initially when regret was expressed, um, there was hope that the Hamoud rahman commission um, report was going to lead to some justice, which did not happen as we know that never was made fully public, right? So there is a strong demand for an apology, but for me, as a pakistani if i can say something i think that before apology comes acknowledgement right if you don't acknowledge and if you have not come to terms with that history then any apology remorse or regret kind of remains very very hollow what is that going to do right so i think the bigger work as pakistanis if we want to have this conversation then i think the bigger kind of like work and the focus and the effort needs to be invested in how do we acknowledge and come to terms with what happened Right? And not deny it, not erase it. Um, that That's 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 a prerequisite to any apology for that apology to mean something. If you are still, you know, um, framing it as just something that India did to you, if you're not willing to look at your own policies and your own practices, then, then what does an apology even do? What does it even mean in that context? So that's something um, I think is important to highlight. And the other is that I think that uh, again, if somebody has suffered and they are asking for something, then that is far more important than what I think or what anybody else thinks, right? Um, you have inflicted violence and then you have denied that violence. Apology essentially is, a, is an acknowledgement, is a recognition of the large scale violence and the ways in which people continue to suffer in Bangladesh. And I don't know why there's so much hesitation Hesitation to to do that. I think it's because we have not acknowledged. So maybe that's where the work lies, yeah. It
0: also helps you to If you acknowledge it, I mean, if you go to Germany, we had a theater exchange with uh, the school I was working in and the school in Germany. Those kids, at a very young age, are taught about Nate Germany. So when they say never again, they make sure that hit, the, the worst of Hitler is taught to every child so that. Hopefully, no other child turns out to be Hitler in that country. So, ham jab padhayenge aur batayenge ki villains kaun the, aur bure log kaun the, Maybe we'll start recognizing uh, how many of those still exist, and maybe that's the fear.
1: Bilkul, bilkul. I think acknowledgement—you know—if that process even starts, it is critical for Pakistan itself, like you're saying. Liye wo important hai. Um, It is not a favor. It is. It is a critical process
0: we need to go through. Hmm. Yeah, really cool. so, that, when we language, um, I also want you to address this, because a lot of times we feel that in the cities, everyone is urban centers, are liberals liberals. Are but your work sort of shows that that uh, brainwashing, is the urban centers, people have internalized urban centers. And probably not in the cities,
1: I think this is interesting because it comes back to the education system, right? So, education ke through kya indoctrinate kar um, promote kar hatred, hate sentiment, otherization. When you go to villages, uh, a lot of urban notions are then questioned. Um, you know, uh, a lot of times people will not be preoccupied with the same morality and moral questions that urban middle class is kind of concerned and preoccupied with. So wo bilkul hai, I think, uh, getting outside of Lahore um, and getting outside of urban centers and doing this work has shown me uh, and challenged so many of my own preconceived um, notions Um, yeah I mean also I mean I think just even like women um, you know are working um, in in rural areas, they have to work. Um, their, their engagement with work is very different. The concerns are very, very different as well. In Kashmir, I, you know, women um, in the villages that I was working in are leading protests, right? They're leading the peace movement. So there's just so many other lenses through which we need to see the world um, and, and step beyond our own perspectives. That is so essential, um, yeah.
0: Yeah. I think you also even talk about a Mela in Kasur where people are just celebrating across the borders,
1: huh, because borders are very interesting. Hum usually vaga border imagine kar when we think of borders and you know this all that that whole ceremony that takes place but in a lot of other places borders are not like you know the there a row of plants and and stuff separating the two sides of course ranges there you can't cross over that's very dangerous but um you know for for people living in border areas especially 65 the crossover hota so borders are not imagined in the same way and the other quote unquote is not also you know figment of your imagination you actually see people working in the fields across from you and um, until recently in Kasur, um, and, uh, you know, Hindu, Muslim and Sikh uh, pilgrims would come together at the shrine, which was at the border. I think Indians and then Pakistanis. And uh, there's one interview I did, you know, somebody actually met uh, family members. Uh, through that Mela, they connected through that. I've also documented other stories of meeting at the border, border, being the only place in which you can momentarily reunite. Of course, line of control, Neelum Valley, which is in Kashmir, uh, in the winter months. Up to social media is, is more kind of present, but in the winter months, um, the river would kind of shrink, people would sit on both sides and speak to one another. So borders, again, also have very different meanings in different places, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I think people who imagine that a कोई border wall बनी There's so much cattle and livestock that cross and it's... Sometimes it's just so funny, these ideas, right? That fishermen took it, because क्यों क्योंकि is to It's just, how are you drawing a line in the sea? How are, like, gaayin, so I've uh, also visited India, and I think when uh, Sikh or uh, Hindus specifically come Pakistan, aate hai, there's a lot of this idea about who and there's a lot of kindness. And then people ask me, did you face the same thing? And so I went to Delhi primarily. And I was like, not really. And then I was thinking about it. And then I was like, I don't stand out. So if I'm walking in Delhi, I don't think people look at me and think Pakistani. Whereas maybe in Lahore, if you're Indian, you stand out a lot more so people recognize you so i don't think i was recognized as pakistani when i was on the metro was your experience similar
1: my experience has been different in the sense that a lot of times i have traveled across the borders for work and so people know uh, the interactions i'm also going into if i'm going mm-hmm. in and doing an interview to logon ko pata hota hai but uh, schools name batati usually whenever i go anywhere I, I like to have them guess and uh, never Usually, never uh, are they able to, you know, guess Pakistan because the notions are yes they are, but you know each other um, that it takes them a while. And then I tell them I'm from Pakistan. It's a very interesting response and reaction. So, I
0: think Bollywood ne bhi tapa kar Because you don't walk in with like adab. Ham Pakistan
1: se <laughs> Yeah, the Muslim portrayal, you know, of, of, uh, of Bollywood and then of course, you know, Pakistan, maybe when I took kids across with me for Citizens Archives program. So they also were expecting that like Star Plus dramas, they will be wearing the same kind of jewelry and so they were also shocked that they look like us. Um, so I think they're crossing over. Is so it's Where so, all did
0: you go? Uh,
1: I've, been to, I've been to Delhi, I've been to Mumbai. Uh, Bangalore, uh, Kolkata, Chandigarh, Agra. Yeah.
0: Don't you feel that if you're sleeping Lahore and you shift like a prank and wakes up in Delhi, the person wouldn't even know they're in a separate city.
1: Yeah, in many ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I also think, um, you know, we talk about a lot of similarities between Lahore and Delhi, but there are also similarities between Karachi and Delhi because of the migrant populations kind of Going across, right? So uh bhi hai. There, you'll whenever I go there, like people want to know about Lahore, people want to know about Karachi. Many of them have moved from these places. Um so there's so much. I think sh- Karachi
0: or Bombay is other parallels draw
1: Usually draw but I just find it interesting because a lot of people move from Karachi, you know, um, and, and a lot of people move from Delhi to Karachi. So be here. Like really? I think Karachi mein Delhi colony here.
0: Delhi Wale um, is a full full Puri community, Mahaprabhu. Uh, and even in uh, Delhi, when I jamia Masjid, ke around, Nizam, kabab and all of that, it's so similar to architecture, Kulele, Masjid aur uske around khana, log... huh, yeah. I, I know okay. I so I can only imagine what people, uh, you know, who suffered went through. And the work that you're doing is absolutely stellar. I think we really need to import, uh, record this. stories uh, So I also want to ask you personal questions. I want to do a podcast where I interview people and get their stories. So what should I be mindful of? What should I think about when I'm doing this?
1: Are you thinking of speaking with partition survivors?
0: Yes, and doing like a podcast, like uh, with... The the yeah,
1: yeah. I think just um if I I don't know if I'm in a place to give you any of course advice. you are.
0: Who else is? You
1: are the Howard <laughs> Zinn of Pakistan. oh gosh not at all no but I think that just let them tell you what they want to tell you I think that's the best advice I can give anybody so you know tell them you know what this day means to ask them what this day means to them and whatever comes forth whatever they want to uh, share I think there's just the things you were talking about earlier you know not pushing for whatever comes forth that's important I think that sometimes we get so hung up on actually getting the story that we don't realize that it's also really important. What are choos- What are people choosing to share? What are people choosing to remember? What have they held on to 74 years after partition? Uh, that is value in itself, right? Um, so I'm just always really curious about, okay, if they're coming to this podcast, that means they want to speak about it. Well, what do they want to share? What remains important to them 74 years on? Um, so yeah, I think, I think you'll get some really Moving, um, incredible stories. Yeah. The
0: best review we've received is on Apple Podcast, which says, genuinely curious conversations. I was like, it's such a compliment. And a lot of times we undervalue certain things, but things like empathy, when you talk to somebody, having that empathy, recognizing that humanity, these things go a long way, especially when the state's interests lie in dehumanizing. Uh, yeah. What's next? Anna? Kashmir, ho gaya, 71, ho gaya, 47. Ho gaya.
1: I'm working on a new book these days. Um, It is fiction. um, I'm trying. Uh, I'm going to see if that takes me anywhere. But uh, it's on mob violence. Uh, It's on post-partition violence. Um, And I'm using the color red to talk about anything that is taboo or prohibited in societies, what happens when red is cited. And there are a few reasons why I wanted to write this as fiction and, and do this in this you know, way where I'm not talking about a particular community or particular form of taboo, but more generally. Because I think that stories that come out of South Asia often get packaged as, oh, these Pakistanis or oh, these Indians, and I think, I think this violence is, is beyond South Asia in many ways, right? Um, so whether it is, you know, lynchings that happen on accusations of eating beef in India or lynchings that happen on accusations of blasphemy in Pakistan, right? Or the long history of lynchings that have happened um, against black people on black bodies um, in, in North America or the more recent cases here in Canada where three generations of a family were killed. Um, by a 20-year-old white man who did not want to see this symbol of, you know, hijab or head covering on shilbar and what was seen as a white space. What happens when dread intrudes and or what happens when, you know, some kind of taboo or prohibition intrudes and what you what you feel is your space, or what you feel is sacred. Um, so those are some notions I'm trying to explore and um, let's see where that takes me. Yeah. Uh, I mean,
0: this is a very long discussion. Ho and I know I've taken a lot of your time, so I'm not going to go into it, but I think it's worth mentioning that in literature maybe How much power. Manto tells you as much about, his, uh, about partition as any objective history of partition would.
1: Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And I think it also gives um, a layer of protection to people, especially when you're talking about, um, you know, issues like blasphemy um, or, you know, others. So, so I think there's also that fiction. Fiction can be really powerful in multiple ways. So I'm I'm just seeing what it does for me. Um, we'll see. Yeah, I'm
0: quite excited. I think uh, it'll be great because even your non-fiction work, it it inspired. I don't know the writing style maybe is not that academically verbose for the sake of it, which sometimes makes it inaccessible. Your work is very accessible, which uh, is generally seen as a quality of fiction as opposed to non-fiction. Thank you. That means a lot. Yeah. So so I'm really looking forward. is there any hope? Is there any hope?
1: I asked ask this question at the end of most of my talks and I feel really bad because I'm not in a very optimistic way. No, but
0: the, the reason it is asked at the end is to pressurize you into saying something hopeful. <laughs> so like know. if somebody says, is there any hope and you're like, no, the ocean is burning. So <laughs> whats sad end
1: I know I know okay so let me try hope
0: <laughs>
1: as you can tell I'm not doing a good job telling this um, I have to be hopeful right I mean that's why I'm continuing to do the work I do you are doing the work that you do everybody I think um, you know so many people are engaged in really really brilliant work we are continuing to do that because we hope that it does something, shifts something um, in some small way. Um, so I think, and I get very hopeful when I speak to young students. Um, stereotypes you know, distortions internalize also very internalized. But I also see what happens, you know, when when you kind of bring in other material for them to engage with. I also see what happens when young Indians and Pakistanis speak to each other. I always love to share this anecdote. It's been with me for years, so I'll do that here as well. I was doing a Skype exchange with students in mumbai i think seventh grade and um, like 20 30 minutes into the conversation one of the students got up and said now i know not all pakistanis are murderers i can think of going there too now let me give a disclaimer there are many misconceptions and stereotypes that my pakistani students have about india as well um, but what you see is that they go from this space of i don't want to speak um often to to saying when is this going to happen again uh, when can we speak to each other again? So I do feel like there's a lot of power in dialogue and, and with technology now, I think it can be leveraged in different ways to make the this kind of communication possible, to make conversations like this possible. So I'm really hopeful about that. Um,
0: you feel it because of social media, because I've I'm finding myself doing this as well, that you have to hedge it and do the both sides. I talk a lot more or criticize Pakistan a lot more because I live in Pakistan. But label you, i sort of have to also be like no, okay, Kashmir, in Palestine, in Palestine. uh do you do you feel like you also need to hedge yourself because people see you as a pakistani i
1: think uh, i think it is yeah, I, I also think it's really problematic because you can't equalize um, and you shouldn't have to because the very different things that are happening and um, you know you don't wanna neutralize. We were talking about numbers, you don't ever want to neutralize, but I do w- worry that social media, but things get appropriated. Mm-hmm. So I will share this, You know, last 16th December, the one that just passed, there were things that were taken from my book um, by these troll accounts on, on Twitter, um, misquoting things out of context, trying to draw an equation between, you know, APS and and 16 December, which we know happens um, a lot, right? So I always worry about how content is selectively taken and appropriated and then presented to further hate and further nationalistic narrative. And it's something I struggle with because I write about topics like this. So if I'm writing about the Pakistani side of the line of control, I'm in no way saying that what's happening, um, you know, uh, on the other side of the line of control is okay or justified or the same, not at all. But it can sometimes be appropriated that way. So I do worry. And I think social media is a place the proper discourse is not possible. So common lift and use hoga and that and when it furthers something that I am so I feel so strongly against then it's really it's hurtful and um, you know it's, it's just uh, so it, I think it's very problematic as well with social media
0: cesspool so yeah. of filth I don't think I mean you can think about it and it's good that you do but can anyone really do anything to stop their content being approved
1: because then i think right should i stop telling these stories because i know they will be appropriated should i not say it should i not talk about the pakistani side of the line that's what they want um i'm not equating i'm not equalizing not at all i'm just bringing another narrative uh, into the discussion you know um should i not do that silence the answer so i don't know i don't think so um but that appropriation will happen
0: i think academia may be those Whereas new scholars are like, this person used this lens. This is why I was wrong <laughs> just to publish certain papers. But I think those conversations are important. If you don't have those conversations, uh, the thing doesn't go forward. There's science formula. Two plus two, four. People will keep discovering different colors of this mosaic. Thank you so much, Anam. It was such a pleasure talking to you. It didn't feel like I was talking to you for the first time.
1: Likewise, it was really, really nice being in conversation. I love what you're doing. Thank you for doing this. I love what
0: you're doing. And Joe, is there any hope? Tha? I think yehi hope hai that I see a lot of Indians commenting. I see a lot of people in Bangladesh commenting. Jitna people to people exchange hoga and people see each other as human beings, uh, that would help. I think Fawad Khan uh, going to Bollywood really helped. Because Indians were like, who would want to nuke Fawad Khan? So maybe, maybe we need a lot more Fawad Khans to make this world a better place. Thank you so much, Anam. And thank you for listening. Take care. Bye-bye.